0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the Canadian government puts free speech in its crosshairs and the dangers of the net zero climate target. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. There is no reason to mince words, no reason to pull punches. Free speech in Canada is under attack. This is not a new phenomenon. We've seen over the past several months the liberals go all in on Bill C10, a bill that would bring the internet and content providers under the regulatory purview of the government. We know culturally that cancel culture is ubiquitous, people that are deplatforming others, this is not a new phenomenon. But to see the war on free speech go in such a brazen direction from the Liberals nevertheless makes this a very dark day, not just in Canadian politics, but for Canadians and for liberty itself. And again, this this may sound melodramatic. I don't care. This is a big deal. The Liberal government is bringing back a section that many people, myself included, cheered when it died. And that is Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act. If you've been new into politics, you might not have been around for this, and that's okay. But in 2013, a conservative private member's bill introduced by Brian Storseth repealed Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act. This was the section of the CHRA that effectively allowed the Human Rights Commission, to prosecute bloggers, columnists, journalists, people who said controversial things online, because it said that there was an expectation of freedom from discrimination on the internet from all of the protected grounds of discrimination laid out in the Canadian Human Rights Act, and these protected grounds are the obvious ones, race, sexual orientation. This is the act that Bill C-16, which uh, shot Jordan Peterson to fame, uh, expanded to include gender identity and gender preferences in its current form. So all of that is now part of what's just been introduced this week by Justice Minister David Lametti, which is a regulation that would effectively allow for government to prosecute hate speech through the Canadian Human Rights Commission. I want to read from the bill itself so we are all on the same page of what's happening here. The government adds back to Section 13, by the way, where there was a hole from the Conservative repeal, this. It is a discriminatory practice, to communicate or cause to be communicated hate speech by means of the internet or other means of telecommunication in a context in which the hate speech is likely to foment detestation or vilification of an individual or group of individuals on the basis of a prohibited ground of discrimination. So the act is saying if it is likely to foment detestation and vilification, it is thereby illegal because it is discriminatory. And it also goes on to say that if you are just hosting it, if you have a blog and someone comments on it, that's not an offense. If the social media companies are subjected to it because someone posts something online, they're not liable. And it's interesting that Stephen Gilbeau, who's been talking about the need to go after the big guys, actually pulled his punches on this and didn't make the social media companies liable, which I just find interesting. An aside there, they say that's going to all be dealt with in a future bill. I want to read the definitions of this because the whole problem with hate speech laws is the lack of a cohesive and universal definition for them. In this act, it says hate speech is the content of a communication that expresses detestation or vilification of an individual or group of individuals on the basis of a prohibited grounds of discrimination. So those words, detestation or vilification. And it actually goes further than that to say that it does not qualify as hate speech solely because it expresses mere dislike or disdain or it discredits, humiliates, hurts or offends. So the government has through this bill said there's a a line between speech that humiliates, hurts, offends and speech that is likely to foment detestation and vilification. But how do you define that? How do you draw that line? What if I were to get up and say, you know what, I don't think that trans women should be allowed to compete in women's sports. Is that likely to foment hate? What if I say, I don't like this thing or that thing that may be falling under a protected ground? Is that going to just be humiliation or is that going to be hate? The reality is we already have a definition of hate speech in Canada in the criminal code. And that definition has a very high threshold because it is criminal law. So anything we see here is lowering that threshold. Anything we see here is thus expanding the parameters of what government constitutes as unlawful speech. And the bill, by the way, does a number of other things. It doesn't just allow the Canadian Human Rights Commission to prosecute you for thought crimes if something you say is likely to foment detestation and vilification. It also has a criminal aspect as well. And I won't go into the huge list of details here because I I want to explore this in a future show, but effectively it means that you can have a peace bond put against you if someone applies to the court because they're concerned about the forms of hate speech that you may be embracing. Fear of hate propaganda, offense, or hate crime. So if you have fear on reasonable grounds that a person will commit a hate speech offense, you can then go to a court and they can put a number of restrictions on someone from taking their firearms away to uh, making them agree to a list of conditions and and so on. So again, another example of this sort of thought crime approach in this bill. But I want to focus in on the Human Rights Act because a lot of people will think because this isn't criminal, it's not as big a deal. And there are two issues. Number one, when you are accused of hate speech, that is the label that sticks with you. Especially when as when Section 13 was around the first time around, the burden was on those accused to defend themselves. It wasn't as though you had to be proven to have said something hateful beyond a reasonable doubt. No, you were the one that had to defend yourself. And it was the state that was prosecuting you. So someone would make a complaint. And when you read through the bill, the same thing is happening here. They are protected. Their anonymity is protected. Someone could apply to the Canadian Human Rights Commission, complain about what you've said, and you never know who they are. So they're not the ones that you get to defend yourself against. You don't get to face your accuser, as is supposed to be a cornerstone of the rule of law. It's the government that becomes your accuser. So even with this protection of, well, you know what, it has to go beyond humiliating and offending, you have to really foment detestation and vilification, Uh, that doesn't really matter without clear definitions of what those are. And we know from what Stephen Gilboa has said in the past, I think it was in a, a Quebec newspaper interview, that the government is going to take as its approach to this the, so- the Watcott Supreme Court decision, which holds that truth is no defense, as we've talked about a number of times on this show. So the Liberals are bringing back Section 13 with a vengeance after this section was taken away. And the, re- the way they're doing it, The way they're doing it is worth noting because Parliament is basically done. There is no more that the House of Commons can do. They've introduced this full of rampant speculation from anyone and everyone that we are headed into a summer election. If that's the case, all the bills that haven't received royal assent before the election are dead. They're just gone and they have to be reintroduced whenever the new government comes back. So when the government is introducing bills at this stage, it's doing so because it thinks this is winnable in an election. They want to put forward bills so that when they're running, they can say, oh yeah, we were in the middle of passing all these bills on this, on that. We need you to vote us back in so that we can uh, really go the full distance with them. And, And that's almost more concerning culturally, that the liberals think, and I fear are probably right, that censoring internet speech that censoring what people say online is a winnable position in an election. And the conservatives are going to rightfully respond and say, well, you know what, this is a bill that's anti-free speech, so therefore you, uh, you it's wrong. But the reality is what the liberals are going to do, because they're very good at this. They're, people call a lot of their opponents dumb, which you shouldn't do, because what the liberals are going to play on this is laying at the conservatives' feet speech that is in that gray area, and forcing the conservatives to say, should that speech be protected? I mean, if I were Justin Trudeau and I were in a debate with Aaron O'Toole and Jagmeet Singh and, and E. Francois Blanchet, I would just read a bunch of horrific, horrific things and say, do you think all of those should be legal forms of speech? Force Aaron O'Toole to defend it. But here's the problem we cannot, as free speech defenders, allow ourselves to get dragged into that. Because anytime I've talked about it, someone says, oh, well, well, what about if someone says this? I say, I don't actually care. Because once you start going through line by line and saying, well, you know, this, I don't like this joke, but this speech is fine. And this one's not. You've already lost. Free speech is free speech. And when people say, well, it's not free speech, it's hate speech. Well, hate speech is in the eye of the beholder. And you only need free speech, for speech that you revile. You only need free speech protections for speech that you find is offensive enough that someone might want to censor it. And this is what people miss out on. If you want to prohibit and restrict all the forms of speech that you think are destructive or counterproductive in society, all you're left with are the things that people would say anyway and would not take issue with. And as much as I take aim at cancel culture, rightfully so, there's a difference between cancel culture that's imposed by society and what society has determined is appropriate, and cancel culture that is imposed by the state, which is precisely what the Canadian Human Rights Act did when Section 13 was around for the first time, and what it will be doing in this new and modern iteration of it. And I want to talk about the history of, a little bit here because it is significant I mentioned this was repealed in 2013 it was repealed in part because the commission started going after people that were going to fight back people like my late dear friend Kathy Shadel people like Mark Stein people like Ezra Levant all subjected to human rights complaints by aggrieved activists who were trying to weaponize this law because they wanted to silence their opposition And that's the whole point. You look at the complaints that were leveled against the Western Standard for publishing the Danish Muhammad cartoons, the complaints that were leveled against Maclean's magazine, and that was an interesting one because that complaint was shopped around. They tried to file it in Ontario. They tried to file it at the Canada level and then eventually had to go to the BC level because that was the only one that would take up the case. And this commission... And its investigative powers, its prosecutorial powers, were used by activists who wanted to silence people. They wanted to make an example of those they thought were doing the original version of fomenting detestation and vilification. And they didn't, they didn't succeed. They didn't succeed because they poked people that were prepared to fight back. Which is why Mark Stein, Ezra Levant, Kathy Shadow all literally wrote books about this. And why there has been this enduring attitude that has understood how wrong these things were. And it's amazing how quickly a country can forget that. And I would also say it's amazing that these were around in the mid-2000s. We're talking about conflicts that started 15 years ago. It wasn't until Stephen Harper's conservatives had been in power for seven years... 2013, seven years of a conservative government that this Section 13 was repealed. And you can say, well, they had a minority for a lot of those. Yeah, that's fine. But I'm saying this should have been the very first priority when these issues started rearing their heads for conservatives. And it needs to be the first priority for Aaron O'Toole and the conservatives now. If you are not prepared to die on the hill of free speech, you are not prepared to die on the hill for anything that matters. Free speech is the mother of all liberties. It is the form of liberty that allows you to debate and argue anything else. I've said this in the past. Any right that you have, any law you've changed happens because someone has challenged the status quo at some time by using their right to free speech. So by lowering the threshold for what constitutes illegal speech, you are shrinking the bounds of discourse and it is the liberal government that decides where those boundary lines are drawn. On a cultural front, on a legal front, this is wrong. This is actually, I will go so far as to say evil. A Western liberal democracy that does not protect free speech is not a Western liberal democracy and I do want to delve into the legal dimension of this in a bit more depth here and believe me when I say there will be a lot of talk about this on the show in the coming months but there is a reason for it and that is because this matters and because I was around the first time when people were fighting to get rid of this but as I said we will I'm just giving you fair warning on this let me bring into the show Christine Van Guyen who is the litigation director for the Canadian Constitution Foundation which has said this is a bill that will limit discourse no Two ways about it. Christine, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today.
1: Thanks for having me on, Andrew.
0: So, we have a couple of things here that I think are very important. And one has been, I think, the most predictable discussion about this bill, even before it was introduced. And that is how is government going to define? hate speech. And the bill does include a a definition of it here, which just for context is, quote, the content of a communication that expresses detestation or vilification of an individual or group of individuals on the basis of a prohibited ground of discrimination, unquote. And that's, you know, race, gender, gender identity, all of these things that we know are protected grounds in the Canadian Human Rights Act. And it also adds to that that it doesn't meet this threshold for detestation or vilification just because it, quote, discredits, humiliates, hurts, or offends, unquote. And I've seen a lot of people talk about this in the context of, oh, it's, you know, trying to make sure it's not just going after speech that has the potential to be offensive. But are are these things really clearly defined from what we know about this bill now, as far as when something crosses that threshold from discrediting and humiliating to vilification?
1: I mean, all of these things are just inherently subjective. And that's the problem with trying to create a statutory definition for um, a a subjective concept like hatred. And, you know, there's a lot of existing case law that has dealt with the difference between um, these two notions, the detestation and vilification versus uh, hurt feelings and things like that. But one of the things that is so notable about this bill is it's brought back the civil remedy um, which means you can, as an individual, bring a, a, a claim to a tribunal um, about someone who has used what you believe is is hate speech. So, if the definition um, is as it is, which I think has a huge amount of subjectivity in it, you're asking the public at large who can make use of this tribunal mechanism to understand the, the real nuanced difference between um, what is and isn't hate speech under this statutory definition. And if you and I are struggling with it, and we are pretty deep in, into this stuff, um, I, I think your average Canadian is really not going to know the difference, you're going to have a lot of frivolous and um, disruptive claims brought under this new civil remedy.
0: Yes, and that was exactly what happened when the Section 13 1.0 was around prior to 2013. You had people that were using it. They were shopping complaints to the Canadian tribunal and to provincial uh, ones. They were going after columnists they didn't like, bloggers and authors. And and in, in seeing this, the one glaring issue here, when you talk about the civil remedy, is that the threshold for a civil wrong in the eyes of the law is lower than it is for a criminal wrong. So the hate speech definition that we have in criminal law, which is a uh, very high by design as a threshold, is necessarily lower in this, is it not?
1: Um, I, I, I believe it would have to be. I haven't reviewed the, the bill in detail, but it is a civil a civil remedy, which would suggest a civil standard rather than a, a criminal standard. Um, but you know that old remedy. This old civil remedy, Section 13 of the Canada Human Rights Act, was repealed for a reason. Um, The reason was that the government of the day believed that that remedy was being abused. It had been highly politicized that the, um, the... The remedy was being used to target certain types of speech and not other types of speech based on sort of like a political correctness standard. Um, And and I think that there was a good reason to have removed that remedy Um, this government is bringing it back, proving once and again, and, and expanding its scope to now include all kinds of online content. So they're proving once and again, that they're they are one of the most anti-speech, anti-expression, anti-technology governments we've ever seen in this country. Um, and I think that this type of, um, of arrogance by this government on imposing their views about what Canadians should and should not be allowed to say, and how they should communicate it, and creating even more government overreach and how to monitor it. Um, Canadians should be very concerned.
0: I would agree, and we can talk about the subjectivity of, of foment uh, fomenting detestation or vilification. But there's another word in there that was in the original Section 13 and is back, which is likely to foment detestation or, or vilification and I mean, when you hear likely to do something it, it brings up images of minority report to me and and prosecuting people for things that haven't even taken place but
1: might take place um yeah so i think that that's a big another part of the the problem is this this vagueness standard um in the law and and the whole subjectivity and there's also um uh, there's there's another another portion on um, on this that that has even more to do with this sort of minority port report report um, aspect which is um, the, this conditional um, I forget what it's, it's slipped the word is slipping my mind now but it relates to to to, to youth. Um, but, but there are restrictions on conduct before they, they actually happen. I, I'm sorry, it's sleeping, slipping my mind. Oh, is this the the
0: peace bond section? Yes, it's
1: it's the peace bond. Yeah, it's the peace bond aspect, um, which is, is, um, is really, really troubling for, for a lot of civil libertarians, this notion of peace bonds, which restrict conduct, um, as, as a condition of, of, of release for, for a criminal act. So, um, but but this this is something that a lot of civil liberties organizations have raised concerns over this this new peace bond. um, and this is something that's also included in the legislation.
0: Yeah, and just for context, so someone can go if they, they're concerned about someone's speech, theoretically, to a, a court and apply to have a uh, peace bond applied. And, and if you have one of these uh, applied to you, I, I was looking through this section, you could have lawfully owned firearms taken away, you could be forced to do drug tests, you could be uh, as well subjected to wearing a, a monitoring bracelet. So you have very real limitations of your freedom. And, and you're right, based on a, a crime or an offense for which you have not been convicted or per- perhaps even charged
1: yeah so this is why there are a lot of concerns with peace bonds like sort of generally but in this particular contest ten, text where it relates to expressive activity um, it's it's a extreme seems like extreme government overreach I apologize the word slipped my mind I don't know how that happened.
0: No, at least th- I trust me, I try to get these things out of my mind as quickly as they can. So no, no, no judgment on that. I, I guess the the question that I, that I would ask you, and I, I know we're getting long ahead of ourselves here because a bill like this uh, will not even be debated in parliament before summer. And if there's an election, it completely goes away and, and would need to be reintroduced. But but are things like this, in your view, likely to be struck down as unconstitutional, or or is there enough of a a wiggle room from, you know, reasonable limits and and other uh, forms in the jurisprudence that that suggests something like this could actually be upheld?
1: Uh, Well, I certainly think it will be challenged, but I will say that the hate speech, um, the criminal hate speech laws have been upheld in this decision called what caught, and then there was a a challenge to the previous section 13, the civil remedy, which was also um, upheld. So Um, I do think that this bill is different. It's more expansive. And I also think in in the revised version of the bill, we're likely to see something related to takedown orders for platforms that makes it different as well. Um, That doesn't appear to be included in this bill, um, but I do think that that is likely to come in perhaps a revised version of it that we may see later. later. But I I think that there's gonna be a big interest in, in challenging this legislation. And I will say that you know I view hate speech as abhorrent. I view racism, um, homophobia. These things are abhorrent, and, and these are ideas that are are nasty ideas that we should we should explain why they're they're nasty ideas. And if you have people just lurking on the internet, um, secretly sharing sharing terrible ideas and concepts. Without confronting them and explaining why those notions are wrong, you'll never you'll never end up with with a better society. Instead, you'll have a society that criminalizes teenagers for for burning pride flags. and that's that's not a good direction for our society.
0: Very well said, Christine Van Gin, litigation director for the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Christine, thank you so much. Always a pleasure.
1: Thanks for having me on
0: that you know I whenever I bring on the expert because I'm not a lawyer I just play one when I cover uh, legal challenges and cases and and bills and court decisions and all of that Christine is a real lawyer and I always hope when I have an interview with her or one of her colleagues that I'm going to at the end of it feel better because they've explained well no it's not actually as bad as it thinks unfortunately, this one is exactly as bad as it looks, which is why I spent so much time talking about the cultural implications of this at the beginning, because it really is two-pronged. On one hand, you have the cultural dimension of this, the thrust behind this that makes the Liberals think they can successfully campaign on this. That means the Liberals know Canadians, by and large, do not support free speech. And then the legal side, which is that it doesn't matter that our Constitution protects freedom of expression. It doesn't matter that you are supposed to be protected against all of these arbitrary uh, things that the law can throw at you. It doesn't matter. This is going to be most likely upheld, even though it is a bill that very literally and very directly will censor online content. We will have lots more to say on this in the shows ahead, but let's take a quick break here with more of The Andrew Lawton Show coming up next here on True North. True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to the Andrew Lawton Show. You wouldn't think countries around the world would be racing to get to zero, but that's exactly what they are doing when it comes to net zero. The magic words are the fuel for the global climate change discourse. By 2050, the world has to be at net zero in terms of emissions. This is the goal. This is the target. Doesn't matter what the economic cost to get there is. And as we hear in a fantastic column I want to promote right now, there is a great the epic times why net zero is a suicide mission for canada the author fergus hodgson who's the director of econ america's a financial consultancy joins me now it's good to talk to you fergus thanks for joining me today
2: andrew my privilege and i'm just i'm a great fan of your work so glad to be with you
0: Well, that's how you get invited back when you open with that. I I appreciate your kind words. Talk to me first for people that aren't as familiar with this. what, What does net zero mean? And then what are the implications of that for Canada?
2: Yeah, great question because it can be cryptic. Net zero means that our human activities contribute as much greenhouse gases as we remove from the air. So in in other words, we don't increase the the quantity of greenhouse gases in the air relative to what they were previously. Now, that's obviously a very difficult task because we we simply cannot get our greenhouse gas production down to zero. That means there have to be some forms of offsets, which means literally removing greenhouse gases from the air or capturing them before they get in the air. And this is no easy task. I don't know how much detail you want me to get into, but, but basically it means a profound restructuring of the energy sector. Now, how you define greenhouse gas, obviously that is a loaded term to begin with, and it depends how much you believe human activities, are heating the earth, right, because greenhouse implies that our gas production release is heating the earth. The term, term is self-defining, uh, basically, or it's, it's, it's affirming a point. Now, of course, the, the major challenge is that this comes into direct conflict with Canada's energy sector. Now, of course, Canada only produces about one percent of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. But on a per capita basis, it's actually higher than average, naturally, because Canadians use a lot of energy. And so this is a particularly vulnerable issue or or problematic issue for Canada. Not only is it problematic because of energy consumption, it's problematic because you have a uh, incumbent government that is more inclined towards the virtue signaling or to the posturing as opposed to sound economics than politicians normally are, which is not, which is not a, a high bar to uh, how can I put it? I'm not saying that governments in general are inclined towards sound economics, but the Canadian government is particularly uninclined towards sound economics. And that is why we have a, a, a profound problem of achieving this target. Now, the stated goal is 2050, so just a generation away. And that requires, as I said, a profound restructuring, basically. And there is different organizations are putting out basically timelines for how this can be achieved. And one of them basically is that there would be a ban, absolute ban on all coal mining this year. That gives you a sense for how radical the changes have to be.
0: Yeah, and that's, I mean, one of the objectives of the upcoming conference in Glasgow, I mentioned at the beginning, COP26. They want to accelerate the phase out of coal. They want to flip entirely, basically, to electric vehicles. Now, I'm assuming they don't expect that one to be an overnight, but there are some fairly radical proposals that are pushed to states and pushed by states to get to net zero and you are right when you talk about Canada's per capita per capita energy usage but considerations there that you have are a very cold country so heating is required a very rural country so transport you can only reduce your fuel consumption so much and you know what someone who lives in rural Alberta you can't say well just get a Tesla and you know find all those charging spots you know on your way to Lloydminster or something and, and the reality is you you get this goal that we have to as a country work back from to meet because our our government has committed us to it without really realizing how radical the requirements to meet that goal are.
2: Yeah, you make good points there. So it's not just the climate, but also Canada's vast geography, right? The sparsely populated uh, country, which just means that the energy needs are not going to go away. Not only that, but Canada is an energy producer, Right. So if we were Singapore trying to cut down, it wouldn't hurt us so much because we're not an energy producer. But if a fundamental producer in our economy, value adder in our economy is energy, we are shooting ourselves in the foot if we think we can just make radical changes and cut energy production and not have a serious dampening effect on our economic prosperity. Now, yeah, there's so much to, to say about this. Uh, anyone who thinks that just switching to electric vehicles is a smart idea, I encourage you to watch the documentary documentary Planet of the Humans. Now, ironically, this comes from, oh, I've forgotten his right, name right now, but this, this is a documentary which just goes through a lifetime environmentalist exploring how to make renewable energy and its cost effectiveness. And it's just a very sobering review of the case that a lot of these touted saviors just are false gods. So biofuels, for example, or, um, or many of these solar projects, the energy required to create them often is greater than their, their lifetime energy they will create. <laughs> And biomass, where you basically uh, cut down trees and burn them in such a way as to capture their energy, is obviously tremendously destructive to the environment. So, a lot of these alternatives are just false gods. Any, and the what I've found in this discussion is that the people who promote net zero 2050 and not just net zero 2050, but I'm, I'm, I'm calling in from Utah in the United States, the uh, whole, you know, Green Agenda or the, uh, the broader plans, the, the people advocating for them don't want to get into debates about economics or the precise uh, details, cost, of, cost, cost and benefit. They want to promote the likes of the Green New Deal with fear fear-mongering, hyperbole. And the antidote to that is a great book, Apocalypse Never, and it just goes through one by one and basically debunks a lot of these outlandish claims. The most notorious is of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying that the world is going to end in 12 years. Now, but, a, but Yeah,
0: but that was like, wasn't that two years ago? So we've only got 10 years left now. Come on, get with it.
2: Yeah, so... And he he just goes through where that number came from. And it just shows you, unfortunately, that these silly claims, you know, fear, fear sells, fear works. And so claims about the world coming to an end are causing people to go for any solution, no matter how radical, no matter how detrimental, without thinking it through first, it causes this gut or knee jerk reaction that goes around our logic. Let's just be honest about engaging in such endeavors. The arguments that you read on the Government of Canada website or the proponents website are basically that this, these net zero 2020 pl- 2050 plans are win-wins, that doing this is going to revolution our economy and make it so much more profitable and we're going to be so cutting edge. Come on now. Just admit the fact that this is going to cost. And in Canada, there, there are numbers here. Now, I, I always forget the right ones, but basically between 312,000 and 450,000 energy sector workers are at risk of displacement. That is a tremendous uh, number of people to just to push out of their jobs. Not only that, let's just remember that energy is basically an ingredient in almost anything. So if we push up the price of energy, we're basically creating inflationary pressure across the whole economy. And you're in Ontario, you know that you've seen the rising energy prices, and not only rising energy prices, but basically taxpayer funds going to subsidize energy to basically camouflage the fact that energy has become so expensive. So Ontario is actually a good test case of where these crazy plans are being implemented and doing having damage. And there's actually research to show that Ontario is poorer, for example, than all of the Great Lakes states. It's poorer than Michigan, comfortably so. So the prosperity of Ontario has been hit over the, the, the past few years, especially by energy uh, constraints.
0: Well, that competitive aspect is quite important here at a national level as well and and you mentioned this in your op ed that Canada is basically at a competitive disadvantage because of because of this environmental virtue signaling because it's going and doing these drastic measures to that, that end up hurting uh, the Canadian economy when other countries are, are just posturing on this so this whole thing about all the world leaders from Canada to the United States to China linking arms and and dealing with the climate crisis together is just not happening. And I was remembering, I was looking at, and I'll have to pull up the number here, because of all of the countries that had pledged to drop their emissions from the Paris climate agreement. The UN report found that since 2016, the combined impacts have cut emissions by 1%. That's it. The global reduction has been 1%. So Canada is doing all this stuff, signing the death warrant on Canadian jobs, as you just indicated, and it's going to amount to a minuscule, minuscule effect because the other countries that say they're doing this aren't even doing this.
2: Yeah, that's one thing I finished with. That In some ways hollow virtue signaling would almost be better, right? Because then we wouldn't we wouldn't be hurting well, yeah, ourselves. Yeah,
0: if ours were as hollow as the rest of the world's, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, and this, I must admit, Andrew, this really saddens me because I'm a Canadian citizen. My mother's family are in Calgary. And uh, I have a great affection for Canada, especially the West. And it is true that the long-term prosperity and competitiveness of Canada is really struggling, really struggling. Programs like Equalization and this zero 2050 are just, just suffocating the Canadian economy. And in the long run, there's actually good evidence to show too that Canada is attracting weaker immigrants relative to the United States, that Canadian immigrants are much more likely to go on welfare, and much more likely to earn below the average of uh, the Canadian wage relative to immigrants coming to the United States. Canada is attracting the wrong type of immigrants. But in terms of the, yes, the competitive, competitiveness is a problem. The, although the, those in government right now may think that they are garnering respect and admiration around the world, the fact is other countries are laughing at Canada that Canada is the sucker in this situation. They are the one. Canada is really just being played a fool, and it's embarrassing. And I just, I hope, mate, that Canadians really push back against this. Now, whether that will happen, I'm not sure. This is why I'm an advocate for independence, to be frank, which is another discussion. But the... I just fear that the areas of the country—Newfoundland and Labrador, Saskatchewan, Alberta—are not politically influential enough to really fight back. And uh, ironically, one way this might—the the, one of the breaks on this insanity, this net zero 2050 insanity—may be the fact that no one's, no one's there to pay for equalisation. Because for basically, well, for decades, Albertans have sent about 5% of their economy to pay for equalization year after year. And people in places like Nova Scotia and Quebec have been getting about 10% of their economy. Well, not not Quebec. In, In Nova Scotia, it's about that. They'll be getting a tremendous portion of their economy simply in equalization payments. Now, when that gravy train dries up. I suspect the other provinces might get a wake-up call that we've been living high on the hog on the wealth of Alberta for so long, and we've killed the golden goose. But whether it's going to be too late, I'm not sure. And I anyway, so it's, it's, it's a very prickly issue. And it's just, it, my main motivation for writing an article like this is just trying to make people aware that when we engage in decisions like this, there is a trade off. Stop pretending that totally restructuring the energy sector and ratcheting it down by 50 to 75 percent is going to somehow be to our benefit. It is not. That's lunacy. And all these you know, bought and paid for intellectuals who back that are just intellectual prostitutes.
0: Very well said. Fergus Hodgson is the director of Econ Americas and the author of this great piece in the Epic Times, Why Net Zero is a Suicide Mission for Canada. Definitely a message that needs to be heard. Fergus, thanks so much for coming on. It was a pleasure.
2: Thank you, Andrew. Best of luck with your show. Cheers.
0: Absolutely brutal, and I was actually on a press conference, believe it or not, for the United Nations, maybe it was a week or so ago, and we were talking about the upcoming UN-Glasgow summit, and I had asked about it, because one of the goals here is they want to keep the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels by 2100. And why this is so important is because they could not. All of the countries in the world that were thumping their chests about climate, in 2015 at Paris could not agree to meet the 1.5 degree target. So they settled on two degrees and now they're all saying the UN and and the rest of these climate hucksters that are telling us we need to destroy our economies are saying oh no 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 two is not enough we've got to keep 1.5 alive. And I had asked about that. I say is this even viable? And they say absolutely this is the goal and you can see it on the COP26 website. And when you look at how aggressive the climate change measures that Canada has put forward now are and accept that those are not going far enough we have to as a country ask what is next and i was glad fergus hodgson laid this out as well as he did so we have to wrap things up there my thanks to all of you for tuning in to the program this is the andrew lawton show on true north thank you god bless and good day thanks for listening to the andrew lawton show support the program by donating to true north at www.tnc.news